Hi, I'm Rob Shear. I'm the founder of a national nonprofit called Comfort Cases. I'm an advocate for children in our foster care system, a public speaker, author of the book, A Forever Family, but most importantly, I'm the father of five children. Hi, I'm Dana McKay, and I saw Rob on The Ellen Show, and when I realized his organization was based right where I live, I knew I had to get involved. I'm also a radio host and now the director of communications for Comfort Cases. Our country's foster care system is shattered, and the podcast is about how we, as a community, can come together to bring about change, changing the system, and changing the lives of children in care. Welcome to the Fostering Change Podcast. Today we are talking to April Dinwiddie, host of the Born in June, Raised in April, What Adoption Can Teach the World podcast. April is a woman of color who was adopted as a young child by a white family. As a transracially adopted person, April's passion is working with people to facilitate an open dialogue about identity, family, and differences of race, class, and culture. November is National Adoption Awareness Month, so for the next four episodes, we will be focusing on adoption, and we are so excited to welcome April to Fostering Change. Thank you for being with us, April. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So I am absolutely um, in love with you, by the way. So just to let you know that, I do stalk you a little bit. Um, I actually was introduced to April by um, a mutual person who is just as amazing as April is. And when I heard first heard about April, I started digging into who she was, um, what was this whole May and June thing, and um, you know. And I will tell you that your story um, really resonated with me and especially as a dad who's raising four um, black children in our country um, I just like I said I can never get enough when it comes to you and I getting on the phone and talking so I would love for you to tell a little bit of your story from the beginning um, and let people know exactly how your journey started. Sure happy to do that it's interesting that the intersection of race and family structure and adoption all manifested early on in my existence. I'm a white mother of origin, Helen June, um, and a father who I don't know and don't know much about other than some some DNA um, clues through Ancestry and 23andMe. Um, Helen was not interested in a relationship with me. I did find her. So these two people create a child, me. Uh, I come into the world through Helen, disconnected to father of origin, and Helen made the decision after um, having three children already that she's been parenting and, and continues to parent that having another child in the family was not going to work for her. So she chose adoption as my path forward in, you know, having a container of family around me. And so I went into temporary foster care for uh, several months while plans were made, um, you know, exactly what was happening at the time. Of course, I don't know, but I wound up in temporary foster care. And then I went into a foster to adopt placement with the Dinwiddie family, which is where I remained and was eventually adopted. And just on the whole name game thing, I was named at birth by Helen June, my birth mother, uh, June Elizabeth. I was named June Elizabeth at birth. And then when my parents, who were adopting me, the Dinwiddies, decided that they definitely wanted a girl and that was their choice in the whole adoption matrix, they decided on the name April Elizabeth when they knew they were actually getting a girl. So um, I was born June, <laughs> named April, and I'm born in October. So 
um, that's come that's become a basis of the work that I do around educating and uh, elevating the experiences of adoption just using the calendar as a a guide. So that's the sort of early life moment. Um, and happy to get into more as we talk. Wow. So 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 many questions I have about this. So um, so they had no clue that your middle name was already your birth name was Elizabeth and the for your middle name. They did not. They just they just happened to choose Elizabeth. Wow. As well. What's yeah. the chances of that? You know, I mean, I know Elizabeth is a common name, but it's still that is just so you know. Um, do Do you ever think about those those months that you and and by the way, you were so young, I, I don't expect you to remember them. But do you ever think about those months that you were in temporary foster care? I think a lot about that with my kids. You know. That, yeah. you know, especially my, that, you know, well, actually all of them, if they, you know, did someone hug them? Did someone pick them up? Did someone, you know, cradle them at night? And, you know, I think about right. those things, and especially as, as we go and I watch my, my teenage boys growing up. Um, I wonder if sometimes, you know, you know, we didn't get two of my boys until they were two. So the first two years, it's, it's, you know, it's such an impressionable time. Do you ever wonder that? Yeah. I mean, I think, there's a couple things with that. One, I actually also very much believe that I remembered in my body and my spirit the time I was with my birth mother and my mother of origin, Helen. I mean, I think we tend to want to believe that babies, while we don't have the cognitive ability at those tender young ages, we actually have we have a body, we have a spirit, we have cells, and they remember things like uh, someone's heartbeat, uh, someone's voice, um, even their smell, right? So you go from leaving that container, and this is this, this is this, uh, an, an unrequested detachment, right? Birth, period, right? An unrequested detachment. And at, at that point, then you then, again, unrequested by many of us who experience foster care early on or separation, another unrequested detachment moving into a whole new family system, and then the, yet another one into a family that adopts you. So that space and time, especially foster care, is very powerful. Um, while my cognitive brain can't remember it, I do have feelings about what was happening there. And, and I had my first Christmas with that family. They were the ones that for the first you know, eight months of my life, hopefully, and for, for all that I can tell based on some paperwork that I got, I was well taken care of. There were some pictures that, that came with me, a note that was very um, transactional about the things I could do and what I liked and what I didn't like. So I, I find that time very powerful and very mysterious. And I, I, I want people to understand that just because a baby is adopted or, or moves through foster care quite quickly to, you know, in, in the scheme of things, it doesn't mean that there isn't a remembering in the body and the spirit. Um, and, and we have to, be open to it and willing to talk about those things so that a, a young person, as they grow up and they mature through their identity development, doesn't live in that mystery and doesn't wonder about those things because as a human being, I think it's definitely part of how we think and how we're designed and we just don't want to erase that. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you on that. You know, I as a kid, there are, there are smells that I will smell. Um, you know, I'm 54 now that I remember like, oh, in that place where we used to live. And my one of my son's 
he will talk vividly, vividly about things that happened to him when he was one and, you know, and prior to coming to us. And I mean, we're, we're talking like we've even done enough research to find out that he's not making this up. He, you know, even though he was 18 months old, he, there were things that he remembered um, that happened to him in his life that is now he talks about. And it's like, wow, you know, we didn't really give that any, you know, I don't want to say that we thought he was making it up or anything because we believe our kids are honest, but um, I, I, I believe what you're saying is true is that we have to give them, you know, to understand that we do have that memory that sometimes will come out at different times. Well, and that's, and that's really, it's really important to note that that's trauma, right? Like we have to remember that our, our, our brains, while we aren't developed in those tender young ages to, cognitively understand what happened, trauma, early trauma, especially with separation from family of origin, and then other traumas that intersect with that, um, often in foster care and, and adoption, that's real. And, and, it, and it, what, what makes it really difficult, I think, and as you know, as a parent, Rob, and as a, as a person who has come through foster care yourself, you know, trauma can impact so much of our lives and our behavior. So I, I often think that we have a lot of um, work to do as grown-ups to, to really hold space and grace and, and get the support for young people that they need um, to, uh, to face that trauma and to support that trauma and to hold, hold uh, children through that trauma. It's really hard for grown-ups to do that, but, uh, you know, important. Definitely. So let's fast forward just a little bit to when you were adopted and went to live with this family. What was that like for you being a child of color growing up with a white family? Well, uh, you know, it was, it's was it been a journey. Um, so first of all, my family that adopted me is the only family I've ever known. They are my, you know, my people. They're, they're fiercely loving and, and, and amazing. We have a, a really beautiful family and it's really hard and complicated, right? So I think my parents went into adoption with this idea of being colorblind. Um, they wanted a girl to round out their family. They had two boys. They wanted a girl, uh, to be a sister to their, the, the child, the, the, my sister who was born to them as well. So there are three children in the family already. Then I came to be the fourth, the youngest and the only adopted and the only, uh, biracial black child. So my, my parents were in this space of we don't see color, um, we would love any child, and that's very true, and that's what they committed to, and that's what exactly what they did. However, what they didn't see was what the community experience would be, what I would need as a as a child. Um, I often say, you know, I needed very different things than my my white sister and white siblings needed, and um, that's really hard for my parents to sort of internalize as grown ups now because. We didn't really talk about adoption. We didn't really talk about differences of race. There were some things that happened, um, you know, that, that brought that out, um, relatives that were no longer interested in being part of our family because there was a black child in the family now. Uh, things that happened in school that, that we just didn't talk about, I didn't talk about. And it's really hard because I think my, my family didn't necessarily understand and, and there wasn't a lot of support for this experience of transracial adoption. And... You know, now when I talk about it openly as a grown-up, these things that happen, it's really hard for folks in my family. They look back and they go, well, wait, everything seemed fine and everything was great. And they're, it's true, everything was great. Um, not always fine, uh, but it, it was um, a very lonely and unique experience because being in an all-white community, being in an all-white family, um, being 
sort of hidden in plain sight on some level, all the things, you know, being teased, being called the N-word, um, being treated differently, people with their hands in my hair, you know, all these things that were tracking with my experiences um, that were pretty much like solo, like, that I had to deal with solo. So it, it's been a long journey, one that I find today, um, one that I can I can lean into to help folks understand what, what really is is needed for for young people's healthy racial identity development. And the big the big headline is, is that grown ups need to be doing their racial identity work. Full stop. They so, need to be doing that hard work. Yeah. So I've got a question. I'll pull the band aid off. If you could do it any differently, do you think that your white parents should not have adopted you? No, absolutely not. I feel like they 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 should they should have adopted me. I mean, I, I this can be done. And the, and the thing that I think is really important to note for a family like mine, and and I say this with a lot of humility and a lot of um, you know deep understanding for for those young people that are adopted into white families, those black and brown kids or, or, or transracial, biracial uh, kids that that come into families that are white, white families that far. Far, they don't fare as well as I did, and that doesn't mean that 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 I'm better than them or anything. But there can be real, real serious problems that present around differences of race and and racism within family structures. That was not my experience. My experience was culturally, you know, diversity was not culture and diversity were not expansive in our family, right? So I didn't get those things. My hair was not. Uh, attended to properly. I didn't see enough black uh, and brown mirrors around me. Um, we did not have enough talk about um, of the realities of race. That said, my parents built a very sturdy and healthy identity in other ways for me. So I, I feel like they were equipped in a lot of ways to ha- create this space for me to explore my identity. They didn't hold me back in that. I never wanted to be white. I never wanted to to be something that I was not. I needed more help than scaffolding around that that process. I had enough, you know, self-awareness and enough strength built in large part by my family of experience, my adopted family, to go after some of the things, moving to Harlem, doing things on my own. So do I think they shouldn't have adopted me? No. I do think that there are some parents that should not adopt transracially, for sure. Um, families that do have deep racism within their families and communities that haven't done their racial identity work today is very different than it was forty some odd years ago. Um, we we can't we, we we can't and shouldn't um, have children being adopted into families that just aren't doing their racial identity work and creating safety, physical, emotional, and psychological safety for kids. So. I'm not against transracial adoption. I do think that um, having families that um, mirror a, a child's race uh, and culture is the best way that if adoption is the best way, then it is really important that we try to find those families first um, and obviously keep families in, keep children in their families of origin. And then if they can't, find black or brown families that, that meet them, you know, from a racial perspective. And then, and then if not, then finding families that are white is perfectly acceptable. But, you know, we all have to be doing that deep work to really do what, the right thing by children. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of my... It absolutely does. And I'm wondering what resources are out there or for parents that are going to adopt 
um, transracially, what resources are there for them to be able to learn the things that they need to know and do this type of, I guess it would be kind of, you know, training to make sure that they know what they need to be doing in the best interest of the children that they adopt. And before you answer that, I, I want to tell you that, you know, through my experience, Dana, um, we were in the District of Columbia. We were the only two white people in the room when we were going through our foster care adoption classes. And there was never, ever talk. And I think I even read about it in my book. Um, there was never talk about the the racial differences of, you know, the fact that over 98% of the kids who come into the D.C. foster care system were black. And here are these two white parents that were getting ready to, to adopt. There weren't – that wasn't that talk whatsoever. My husband and I have had to and, – and, April, one of the things I want to tap on what you said is about educating ourselves. It doesn't stop just when that baby arrives. It, it is a process throughout the years. But as Dana said, what resources – because I don't see them out there. Yeah, I think there's a couple things with this. One is that there's there's some policy and law out there that really does not encourage uh, federally funded uh, agencies that are transacting adoptions uh, through foster care to to lean into the discussion around race because NEPA, which is the Multi Ethnic Placement Act, which we won't get into deep detail about, but really the 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 premise was. Was in, I think, in, in in a good spirit, which is to not impede or hold back an adoption based on the uh, based on race. But what that did was it it really created this cloud and this lack of what we know to be good for families and children, which is this lack of discussion around race and this lack of training and cultural awareness building for parents who are adopting uh, children outside of their race. So we've we've not been conditioned to, to go deeply into this now. Truth be told, in society, we haven't been conditioned to go deeply into the complexity of differences of race. So it tracks with with what we are experiencing as a whole. When we get down into the details today, there there are more resources available for parents. There are more discussions happening. There are transracially adopted persons, such as myself, um, who, who train and work with parents and uh, create the space to, to do this. Um, agencies, private agencies are doing, are doing good work around providing the training, um, and having the conversation, but we still don't really have enough. And, and, and there, there are narratives out there now because, you know, as grownups now, transracially adopted persons, we're saying, hey, um, we're here and we, we, we really needed things. And there's also research now that looks at the experiences of transracially adopted persons and how, how we are doing um, in the world, and uh, so we're getting there. There, there isn't nearly enough, um, but we have the internet. We have, we have um, Google. We have all the things, um, and we can, we can be in community. You know, you can find other adoptive families that have been, um, you know, in the space and time of transracial adoption to uh, create community around. So there is more than existing, but not nearly enough. And what do you think are the most important things or what do you wish that your parents um, had known and had been able to do for you when you were growing up? Well, it all goes back to, I think, the irony of adoption, right, is especially transracial adoption, is that we are expected as adopted persons to completely shift our identity and to completely assimilate and to adapt into a family culture that is that we're not born into. And we just, expect, I think the expectation is that this happens seamlessly and beautifully and that 
there's nothing that we need to do to support that. Ironically, what, what parents can and I think should be doing is talking and leaning into and steering into this idea of who am I? What is my racial identity? How can I be better equipped to understand something that I have no experience in? And that's a high bar. Those are, I think, things that every human being needs to be doing, but it's specifically urgent for parents who are adopting children, even not even of a different race, but um, certainly if they're adopting children of a different race. And, and that's about, like, real self-awareness. That's about um, looking at your personal operating system of, of, of white privilege and saying, ooh, like, I can't do the same things. Um, my, my child can't do the same things that I can do um, and move as freely in the world as I can. Um, they don't have the same advantages, the same um, access to things. Um, it just, it really is about proactively, like, looking at what you're doing every day, what you're eating, what you're drinking, what you're watching, what you're influenced by, um, and and making sure that at least you're, understanding that and then really looking at what it means to be a person of color in the world. And there's a couple of really easy things that you can do with hints that uh, just tiny little tricks, not tricks, but um, look at the data around um, over-policing in your community of black and brown persons. Look at the data in your school systems around the disproportionality of school suspensions in school and out of school for children of color. All of these things are, are real. So you need to kind of not just not just do the things that are like, ooh, like, like making sure I have products in the home that are black-owned businesses, making sure I have hair, the right hair care and skin care. You also have to look at when a child goes outside of your home and they go into the world, how will they be met? What are some things we have to know? Understanding what the talk is, you know, protect psychological, emotional, and physical safety of your child at every turn um, is, the real, is the real work. Wow. Gosh, you know, and I will have to tell you, I totally agree with everything that you're saying. And it's something that my husband Reese and I have tried so hard. One of the things that that struck that you said is to have mirrors of um, black and brown that you could see yourself. And so that is something that we from the time our children arrived in our home to this day, um, continue to make sure that those those mirrors are around them. And, and also just the fact that we educate ourselves. You know, my husband and I, I, I was talking to my daughter um, just last night, actually. She was doing something with her hair. And I said, um, I said, sweetie, I said, how did you learn how to do that? And she says, dad, she says, um, you know how different my hair is. And I said, I know. I said, you know, we, we, take her to the the best salons that, you know, and she's, but she really wanted to do it herself. And I said, honey, how did you learn how to do that? You, and she said, she said, dad, she said, I just watched a video. I said, a video. She said, yeah. And I said, that is amazing. But you know, April, I got to tell you this, what th- struck me the most. And she says, if I any, ha- if I have any questions, I just call my mom because we have an open relationship with our children's mother. And so I love that confidence that she had, that, you know, her dads were giving her the the product, making sure that she had all of that, but then she still had that comfort level to look at her dad and say, and if I had any questions, I call my mom. Mm. So I hope... Well, Rob, I- you know what? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, sorry, what's fascinating about that is that, you know, the best way, the best way to learn about race and culture in adoption, transracial adoption, is from family of origin. And I'm hard-pressed to find a family, a full family system that does not have a safe person for, for, 
for a young person. I mean, we, we, we talk about the complexity of adoption and foster care, um, especially when there's abuse and neglect, and not every person is safe for your child, and you, as parents, obviously make that call. But the fact that there can be a relationship in a time that your daughter has that, that's, that's amazing, and that is uh, evidence that you can have both a family that loves and parents you, um, two dads, two white dads, and a connection to family of origin, your black, you know, African-American mom, um, and those two things can live together. And that's big human work, but who is the beneficiary of that great, you know, container of, like, all-in love? Your daughter. And and that and, and today we know we can do that and your evidence, you and your family are evidence of that of that being true. And so I love that and um it just speaks to what can be done and uh but it, as you know, it is not easy and um but on behalf of the person you love, that effort is is well placed. I agree. I agree. Wow, what an amazing conversation. You know, this week is so special for me. You know, yes, this is National Adoption Awareness Month, but on November the 5th, we will have we will celebrate my my beautiful daughter Amaya and her brother Makai's adoption day. So that was the actual day that we signed the adoption papers. And I remember when we all walked into the courtroom, the judge had to get the, um, the whatever, the, the assistant, and the, they had to get a larger courtroom because so many people showed up for this adoption signing. And the one thing that the judge said, and he was a a black judge, he said, I've never seen a room filled with so many different skin colors, all here to support two kids. And I think about that. I think back on that day that that even prior to my children, you know, when that, that paper was to be signed, we wanted to make sure that when they looked behind them, they did see their skin. They did see their people. And just like they saw so many people that were there to love them. So listen, I can, I could talk to you all day. You inspire me. You, you make me want to be a better human, to learn more, but also to teach people that, you know, it's okay to ask the tough questions. It's okay that, you know, I, I love the fact that you said, yeah, not all parents should be adopting children of color. And I agree with you on that 100%. Um, I think that it is it is something that, that we're doing a disservice. And as I say to people quite often, foster care is not the answer. What the answer is, is preserving the family preserving the family. Um, and, you know, we understand that in some cases that can't be done, but I don't think we do enough to make, to preserve the family. So thank you. Thank you. You know, we always end our podcast the, the same way. And, and one thing I'd like to know is that it, April, if somebody wanted to reach out to you, if they wanted to, um, we have lots of social workers and agencies that listen to our podcast. It's one of the top 10 podcasts for adoption and foster care in the United States. And so I would like to know, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. Um, AprilDinnery.com is my website. And everything I do in social media is June and April, one word, June and April. And National Adoption Awareness Month, it's really a, a joy, Rob, to be part of your podcast 
and to elevate the voices of those closest to the experience um, as adopted persons. So I'm grateful to you. And I do hope that everybody does reach out and follow her on her, all of her social media platforms. I'm excited that I'm going to be on your podcast, you know, within a couple of weeks. It's, you know, we had such an amazing conversation and, and I still get goosebumps. And I know we, you and I are going to have many more conversations. And by the way, to all of our listeners, April will be back. So this will not be the last <laughs> podcast she does with us because I think she has a lot to teach us um, and a lot for us to do to be good humans. You know, Dana, we always end this the same way, and I'm really excited about hearing what April has to say. So go ahead. So April, if you could change two things about the foster care system, what would they be? I would have fewer children in foster care to begin with and preserve families, as Rob said, and keep family systems supported so that they can stay together. And the second piece is I would really want to try to tackle the disproportionality of children of color within that system. So that means doubling down on the support of families of color that may be um, having a lack of resources or having challenges so that those children can stay in those family systems as well. So it's a little bit of the same idea, but with an emphasis on um, black and brown families. I'll have to tell you what, I'm, I'm going to write another book, Dana, and it's going to be all the answers that we get from that question because I'm so amazed out of the... 60-some podcasts that we have done, there are very few times that we hear the same, same answer. answer. Yeah. I know there's a lot that needs to be fixed about the foster care system. Yeah, and this one, these two answers are spot on, spot on. Listen, I'm so, so lucky to call you my friend. Everybody, you know, please do us the biggest favor. The most biggest compliment you can do for this podcast is, number one, share it, and number two, Leave us a review. Exactly. And everybody can be listening our, on our podcast on what stations, Dana? Um, so we're on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Deezer, TuneIn, and pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. And then you can also find us at comfortcases.org slash podcast. We'll have a post up there with all of April's information, all the other episodes. Perfect. Well, listen, everybody. It shouldn't be just one month that we should all have awareness about adoption. It should actually be every single month. But you know what? We'll take this month and we will do what we need to do to educate people. So, April, thank you for being on our show. And I hope you have an amazing rest of your week. Thank you. Dana and I would like to thank all of you for listening to the Fostering Change podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Make sure you follow Comfort Cases on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Comfort Cases. And check out the Fostering Change blog at comfortcases.org. So everybody, we want to hear your stories. So reach out to us if you would like to be a guest on the podcast. You can find me on Facebook at Rob Shear, Instagram at Rob underscore Shear, and on Twitter at Rob Shear 6. And please share this podcast and leave us a review. Remember, we're all part of the same community. Your zip code, it's not your community, but it's our human race. Let's all make a difference.